Hi, this is Christina Gonzalez. Check out my new podcast, Politics of Food, where we put it all on the plate. So often we eat things because they bring us joy or pleasure or just because we need the sustenance. But there are entire systems that are connected to what we consume before that food even reaches your plate. So much of this show is the exploration of that. All of those interconnected systems and all the decision makers that created that and how we, when they're broken, can fix them. Subscribe to Politics of Food, launching in March. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Most of us alive and breathing have heard of Priyanka Chopra. You know, she's done a few things, including being the first South Asian to headline a American network drama series, a.k.a. Quantico. And today, I get to talk to one of the women behind the scenes, Shabari Ahmed, who is a Bangladeshi writer and was on the writing team for the show, making her the first woman of Bangladeshi origin to write for a network show. Pretty cool. We talk about how it felt to walk into the writer's room for the first time and hear the glass shatter a little bit why there's still a lack of diversity in writers' rooms, and why she thinks South Asians still have a hard time supporting each other. We, of course, get into her current projects. And as usual, as I do with all my guests, I convince her to have a drink with me because, you know, that's what you're supposed to do with your podcast guests, right? I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Shabari Ahmed. are supported by Rocket Club. Rocket Club is the virtual entrepreneurship, coding, and robotics academy for kids age 7 through 14. And guys, my 7-year-old started the class like a month ago and absolutely loves it. They've covered topics such as blockchain and cryptocurrencies and the coding behind the technology. They've talked about stock market analysis NFTs, aka non-fungible tokens, which I'm trying to figure out what that means. And they do all of it through a exciting gamified curriculum. So it's super engaging and fun for kids. They also have 22 additional communities, including coding, robotics, 3D printing, and Rocket Club Live. And they are fully virtual. They have members from 29 different states And also from England, Ireland, and India. It's super, super cool, super exciting. You can check them out by going to my landing page at www.rocketclub.com backslash tuckered out. And make sure you go through my page so you can take advantage of the free trial. Again, www.rocketclub.com backslash tuckered out. So I got to say something super cheesy when Margie mentioned your name and I, you know, of course, the first thing I do is look people up and I found out that you lived in Ethiopia and had a story called Pepsi set in Ethiopia, which was about a daughter of a 
Bangladeshi d- diplomat trying to fit in the country. Yeah. So I think I mentioned in our kind of pre-call that my husband is a Pepsi, Pepsier, Pepsi for life guy. Yeah. So I was like, dude, this is meant to be. I know it's not about the soda or <laughs> the or the snacks, but it's yeah. a sign. A mystical sign. It is a mystical sign. And then yeah. obviously we had our pre-call and I was like, wow, we should have recorded that because that was just like a 20-minute podcast episode right there. <laughs> Can you tell me quickly about Pepsi and why you wrote it? Yeah, well, so I, it's so funny because I was just talking to somebody about that. I just literally, right before I got on with you, I was telling my manager about the fact that I lived in Ethiopia for five years. It was pertaining to a job that I'm interviewing for, a writing job that I'm interviewing for. So I, I, um, I lived in Ethiopia. My dad was the UNICEF representative to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. I was so we left Connecticut. I was seven, and we moved to Ethiopia. And I lived there till I was almost twelve. And I was, you know, I'm the youngest of four, but my siblings were away, so I was basically they were back in the states doing school or whatever they were doing, and I was almost like an only child. And I wrote Pepsi because I think I was always a writer, and I would see these kids playing over the wall of my house. I lived in a, you know, a compound, diplomatic compound. And over the wall was a slum. It was like a very transitory slum. And there were these kids and they were playing this game and they were having so much fun. And the ball that they were playing with was made up of rolled up socks. And I, I went and I became friends with them. And they were my friends. I would climb over the wall. I wouldn't tell my parents. I'd climb over the wall. It was a pretty high wall too. I don't remember. Right. Climb over the wall. And I would play with them until like the sun went down. And and we played a game called Pepsi, which is, you know, you stack up Pepsi bottle caps, seven of them. And there's two teams. And then you take the one team hit, takes the ball and uh, hits it. Okay. And knocks down the stack. And then they have to restack it without getting hit by the other team with the ball. I feel like, isn't yes. that an Indian game? It sure is. And okay. it, it is. It's a South Asian game, which I didn't know at the time. Right. The, the Ethiopian kids were calling it Pepsi. In India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, it's called Seven Stones. Yes. Got it. Shatsara. So it's yes. even in Ethiopia, it's seven Pepsi bottle caps. And in, I in, love this and story. In India, it's seven stones. It's seven. Seven's like the magic number. And I'm going to tell you, it was a brutal game. It was like brutal. Like oh. it was like till the death, you know, and I became very good at stacking them up fast. That My seems like it would get pretty intense pretty fast. It was intense. It was so much fun. Um, but I mean, I didn't realize how extraordinary it was that I was playing with kids who were very, very poor and, didn't have food on a regular basis. It didn't, and I would climb up, you know, the wall and go to my house and it was, and I always had lice because I was playing with it, but I love, and then I would go to my fancy American school and had these American international friends and so on. But I was always looking forward to playing with my friends over the wall. And and, and many, many years later, I started, I, I mean, I never saw them again. I don't know where they, I don't know what happened. I mean, imagine what happens to kids who are, you know, from that, who are so right. poor and and vulnerable. I don't know right. if any of them are even still alive. So, and one day I sat down and I wrote this story. That's amazing. And, I'm going to have to yeah. read it. I, I, and I, I give your parents props because I feel like a lot of parents wouldn't allow it. No, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't. Well, they didn't know for a while. <laughs> yeah. But when they found out, they didn't mind it at all. Wow. What a memory. I just kind of wonder why Pepsi and not Coke, but maybe Pepsi was a drink there. 
It was the drink. I don't know. It was the Pepsi. They just called it. You know, I don't even know if the bottle caps were Pepsi. They just called the game Pepsi. Well, I'm going to have to pass this along to my yeah. uh, Pepsi husband. So yeah. that's, that's awesome. And, and I'm just going to start off from the bat. So obviously your name is, of course, associated with Quantigo. Yes. So let's talk about that. I'm sure you've talked about it a lot. <laughs> yes. But I want to talk about Monica. a little bit more. Okay. And then, we'll, and then we'll talk about some fun, other fun stuff. Don't worry. For sure. And I'm probably going to ask you a question you've been asked many times. So walking into that writer's room. Yes. Did you feel the glass shattering a little bit? I did. And it. I felt like we were making history. And we were. Yeah. Um, the showrunner, you know, Josh Safran, who's the showrunner of Quantico. Um, I'm not even sure how much he knew he was making history. I mean, you just get on with the business of making a show. It's a right. job, you know, so much pressure was on his shoulders and so on. But the fact that the lead was Priyanka Chopra. Right. And she was Indian, not even Indian American, mind you. She was from India. Right. A, bol- a bona fide Bollywood star headlining a primetime network show on the Titan that is ABC. ABC is, you know, a Titan. Right. A behemoth. Um, it was, it was really groundbreaking. Um, and, you know, I, so I felt, I felt like this is something else. I mean, it was in 2015 and there was nothing else like it. Yeah. On ABC. And you didn't see as many Indian. If you saw South Asians on American television, they were usually a cab driver. They were Apu from the Simpsons. They were, you know, they were not, they were caricatures of themselves, a lot of stereotypical stuff or the immigrant, or the the irritated cab driver who's like, I don't want to take you to Queens, you know, something like that. Right. Yelling at, you know, Kate Hudson or whatever, you know, it was never. Oh, yeah. I think there was a Kate. Yeah. There was yes, probably there was, I remember that scene. Kate, right. Something in a New York cab. It's like, you know. Some so rom-com. Stuff, yeah, some rom-com. And, and right. So, so this was the first time. And, you know, we didn't really lean into her Indianness, right. which, you know, I think that there's pros and cons to that. But ultimately, I think it might have been a good thing because we didn't make a big deal out of it. Right. It was normalized. The, it was normal. She's just who she is. And she happens to be right. with South Asian heritage. And I mean, we played around a little bit with, there was, I think there was like a, a notion of like 10 lost years where she was in India and doing stuff and so on. We never got a chance, at least in season one, to address it or in season two or in season three. I don't think it was ever addressed, but it was there. And we used it when we wanted to. There was also the other thing about Quantico that was extraordinary was the Muslim twins, the right. two agents, Nima and Reina. And, um, you know, and one was a hijabi. Yep. And so that was groundbreaking. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, there was a sense of that we've really pushed that uh, diversity ball further down the field. And since then, we're seeing more shows with South Asian Americans. We're seeing, you know, in, in more normal capacity, less stereotype. I, I still feel we have work to do. Yep. I feel like everyone I talk to that's working in the industry says the exact same thing you have. Yeah. I think for people like me who are kind of outsiders looking in, there does seem to be some amazing forward movement in it. Yes. You know, like, yes. And that's maybe through these streaming services such as Netflix and Amazon Prime where there just yeah. were options. I do and, think and- Quantico has a lot to do with it. 
Maybe yeah. people don't even stop and th- but Priyanka Chopra doing what she did for three years on a major prime and our ratings in season one were absolutely phenomenal. Right. Um, and she, she was really pop. She really sort of, uh, she broke a ceiling there. Right. I still think there's work that needs to be done, especially in terms of having the rooms populated with more South Asian female writers. I was going to ask you, that's my next question. Yeah, there's Is not it- enough, there's not enough, you know, women identifying South Asian women writers or women identifying writers in rooms. There's not, there's still not enough. There, it, there's still a very small group of us. Um, Is it because there's a small group? So there's not, there's a ton frankly, of, many people to pick from or is it no, because no, no, there's a, there's a talent, there's a lot of talent out there. Okay. Okay. I, th- I think so. I think, I just think the material, there's not enough material. I think that Hollywood Still, you don't you Hollywood still is not trusting us to tell our own stories. The right. showrunners are still overwhelmingly white, right, and male or white and female. They're just overwhelmingly white. Like recently, I don't know if you're familiar with a show called Kim's Convenience. I am. Yes. Okay. There's a there was a, I just I inhaled that show. I. Came to it a little late. I come to a lot of things a little late, you know, because I wait until the hoopla dies down because I right. see what, the, what the big deal is. And usually I'm disappointed if there's too much hoopla, right? Yeah. But I wasn't, like, I've never seen Lost, by the way. I still haven't Me seen either. Lost. Me neither. Me neither. I've had people try to explain it to me and they get lost, no pun intended, trying to explain it to me. So I'm like, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll figure it out, you know. Good mom I'll, joke. Good mom joke. Good, good mom joke. I'll watch it yes. at some point. But um, Kim's Convenience was groundbreaking. You know, it's set in Toronto in a particular neighborhood. And it's about a, a South Korean immigrant family that run a, who run a convenience store. And it's it was just really interesting. Recently, it's been canceled because the showrunner, the South Korean creator and co-showrunner has left. And I guess the, the network, CBC, I don't remember um, which network it was, Canadian, the main Canadian network, feel, felt like they couldn't go on without a without this particular showrunner. But the actors on Kim's Convenience have very publicly stated that the storylines were insensitive, racially insensitive, you know, culturally insensitive. And there was a lot of things about it. And even I noticed it without knowing about this controversy, there was particular storylines I was watching, especially towards the end of the, of the series where I was like, Hmm, that doesn't, that doesn't really sit well. That's weird. Like, is that right? And then I, I, just recently read all these articles and what it comes down to is that as one of the actors on the show said is that Hollywood, both Canada, North America, whatever, still do not trust us Asians to tell our Mm -hmm. own stories. And there were very few in the writer's room. There were virtually no, there was no Asian female writers in the writer's room of Kim's convenience, a show that is about an Asian family. There were very yeah. Is it trust or is it that they don't want to give up the seat? You know, um, I think it's white supremacy. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think it's like, I think it's, you know, we're in charge. And, right. you know, and so there's a lot of talk about diversity and a lot of talk of, about inclusivity, but we, we're not seeing, we're seeing stories, but we're not seeing the South Asian showrunners. Right. We're not seeing the Asian, you know, senior to mid-level writers in the room. We're not seeing, 
you know, uh, that kind of, we're not seeing the female, the South Asian female and the South Asian directors. We're not seeing, right. you know, we're not seeing that yet. Um, yeah. So that needs that. Uh, uh, there's been movement, but that also needs to fundamentally change. I mean, how could this happen to a wi- wildly popular show like Kim's Convenience? How could this happen? How could it yeah. be that a show that's so specifically about South Koreans have no South Korean writers in the room? Right. How, how does this happen? Someone's not making the right decisions. Someone's not making the right decisions. Yeah. We just got to start our own production company. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. I think it's just time, right? Yes. Yes. Let's do it. We and live I, next to each other. I actually started mine. <laughs> I actually started ah! one. I started one. I mean, I'm still, you know, it's very new. It's very nascent. But okay. yeah, that that's the right instinct, Ami, because yeah. I mean, it's 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 the way to sort of generate and control your own material. But yes, it's time. I mean, it's time for especially South Asian women to come together and, you know, do these things. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad we, you talked. You said that. I mean, we we talked briefly on it a couple of days ago, and I was telling you, kind of my my own experience with building this podcast and getting mm-hmm. getting into the industry, you know, which has these parallels to to Hollywood and movie making in terms of being South Asian, being a woman, mm-hmm. and still not finding the support I need from mm-hmm. other South Asian women, even in this mm-hmm. industry where you mentioned, and, and I agree that, you know, people just think there's not enough room for all of us. Mm-hmm. And there this, is. There's this, it's this, well, I call it post-colonial shock syndrome. Right. Where it's like, we're still feeling the effects of the British Raj, where we've been made to, we've been manipulated or gaslit into thinking that, you know, there's only, there's very limited spots for the likes of us brown folk. And the, right. the white people are the arbiters of who gets what and when and how. And that is a huge bunch of malarkey, this uh, sense of, uh, of poverty or lack of abundance is, 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 is one of the ways of oppression, by the way, colonial. Totally colonial and patriarchal oppression and um, deprivation. And that is something that we need to sort of, you know, come out of. And there's, there's room for everybody. There's a myriad of stories to be told and a myriad of different ways to tell them. There's so much to be, your podcast is not going to be the same as somebody else's podcast is not going to be the same as somebody else. There's plenty of room for all of it. We cannot allow that the powers that be to tell us what is what is in our within our grasp and we don't need their permission and we don't need to be told what's abundant or what's not abundant we have to so we so there's that it's that lack of support of one another that actually keeps us relegated to second class citizenry and i don't we're doing it to ourselves we're and kind of, yeah we're doing it to ourselves yeah, we are absolutely. and i even catch myself thinking that sometimes like oh my god that person is doing this so i gotta one-up them or yeah you and i know have, yeah. i know it's wrong it's just a just a natural reaction that, when it comes that to- isn't that is not I feel like that's part and parcel of human nature too. I right. don't think that's very particular to an ethnicity or a race. I mean, we all compare ourselves to others and spin out thinking we're not doing enough or we're not enough or, oh you God. know, and that's, you know, that's artists, creatives tend to do stuff like that. 
Um, and, you know, social media is a huge help with all that. So. Yes. I know. <laughs> it's so healthy. I know. It's so healthy. So much healthier now. I'm so, so glad I grew up with no social media. I'm like, the things that could have been online right now about me would have been the jungliness yeah. was just not cool. No, <laughs> no point out. My two girls would have been like, what? Yeah. So really quickly, I, I you know, I was, I was reading about, I read some of your articles. You were surprised to get the gig at Quantico because you were basically saying you're like, you flunked high school for cutting classes and hanging out with boys. You were waitlisted for NYU's master's program, yeah, which MFA. you did go to in creative writing. Yeah. And by the way, this just reminds me of me. Like, I, I was whatever about school. I kind of was just like boy crazy, like just yeah, yeah. kind of made it. I made it. I went to law school, became a lawyer somehow. Wow. And so I just love that you said that because a lot of South Asians would not admit that. Oh, yeah. I mean... I, I'm surprised. I'm, I mean, I think my parents were relieved, just relieved I wasn't in jail. I mean, I was so, <laughs> I was, I mean, I was, I, I never really did anything illegal per se, but I was, I think I was always looking for an adventure. Like I, I was like, life is too short. I must do things. I must right. ride on the back of a motorcycle and with some hot guy and go off into the night and have a good time. Did, I did, did, did you do it? Yeah. 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 And I was, I snuck out of the house. So, I mean, my parents were just like, oh my God. On top of that, I'm Muslim. So it's like, Muslim girls don't do things like that. <laughs> but, um, but, um, yeah, I think I was, but it, I look back on it now and a lot of it had to do with, writing it it had to do with storytelling it had to do with you know having a curiosity and a thirst for life and wanting to know people wanting to know see people in different situations wanting to i'm i'm always fascinated by people like i um i always say that there isn't a boring person on the planet everyone has a story Sometimes right. people don't even know they have a story until you start asking them questions. And they're like, right. I, I've, I've had people say to me, my God, after talking to you, I realize I'm far more interesting than I thought I was. And, I, and I'm like, everybody's interesting. Um, totally. Everybody has a story. This is the podcast. I'm like, I think yeah. everyone has a story. Just what you said. They just don't even know it. Women especially get lost in different narratives that are right. imposed on us. Motherhood, wifedom. Or the go the opposite direction. You you are not a feminist. You're not independent unless you're not a mother. You know, lots of different narratives are imposed on us. So women get lost a lot. Yes, we get we get thrown a lot of shit too. Though, yeah, so. we get thrown a lot of shit, and then and and we get our stories get co opted, and there's all right. all kinds of things that. But men too, just people. I've talked to men who are just like, boy, you you noodled that out of me. I didn't, I haven't thought about my mother in years and, you know, and things like that. You're like, that's why, that's why I was riding motorcycles, like back of motorcycles with cute guys. I have my Goa story that I will have to exchange with you. Oh, Goa. About, about the, well, not motorcycles, whatever the duck ducks, I don't know what they're called. The Vespas? Vespas, duck ducks with a rickshaw. Yeah, the Vespas with with a hot guy and Goa on New Year's. I got all that down, girl. I got it all down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I, I know you, you mentioned you're Muslim. And so I want to talk about Bangladesh. Um, mm-hmm. I know you were born there. Uh, and just quickly to, to wrap up Quantico, mm-hmm. I think I read somewhere that you got attacked for some episodes. Some Islamophobia was happening. Yeah. Uh, episode, how... episode I didn't write. Episode you didn't write. I, did, right. I was not even on the right. It was a whole new writing team. It wasn't even the original writers. No, no new showrunner, new everything. And it was like three years ago, it was around June 6th, and I woke up and there was like, 
my Twitter was blowing up and, you know, and, and I saw something and this guy who is now the, he's involved in the film commission or something of India. He got appointed. His name is Vivek Agnotri. I'd never heard of him before in my life. He's like a film director, some right wing Hindu film director. And he saw an episode of Quantico because in, uh, in India, Quantico um, airs a couple of weeks later after it airs right. in the US. I think it was on Star Plus or something, one of the major channels in India. And the storyline um, involved, I don't even know, like Indians who frame a Pakistani for a murder. Right. Indian nationals who frame a Pakistani for a murder. So, and Priyanka Chopra's character, Alex Parrish, has to get to the bottom of it or something. I don't, I don't know the details. I, I had stopped watching Quantico after, you know, after a while. So I, uh, see, so this Vivek guy goes, obviously, Sharbri Ahmed, the Muslim writer on the show, wrote this, which is, <sighs> which is so ludicrous on me because all you have to do is look up the credits. They didn't even no, bother. There's no, there's no, there's no need for fact checking. It's fine. No, they didn't even bother looking at the episode credits. They went to IMDb, saw Ahmed, and were like, "That's it. She's a, yep. she's a Pakistani." Done. And the best is they're like, "She's a Pakistani spy." And then, then it was really funny. Uh, somebody goes, "No, no, no. She's Bangladeshi." And then a couple of tweets later, "That's bad enough as it is." Oh my <laughs> they were, god! They were so disappointed. That I wasn't Pakistani. <laughs> They're I like, wait, how do we respond yeah, to this? How do we do it? But anyway, it didn't matter. And but I joke, but this Vivek guy, he even after I tweeted at him and I said, listen, I didn't, I just I thought there was a misunderstanding. Like I didn't right. I said, look, I didn't write this. It, it was not me, and I am no longer with the show. He ignored this. He I ignored it. And he was so incredibly insulting. And I'm just going to say the misogyny and violence and abuse that was rained down upon me and people who tried to defend me, Hindu, Muslim alike, the threats of gang rape, they go there. They go right there. They go right to the misogyny, the gang, the threats of gang rape. And then the, and then the, you know, next storyline, Alex Parrish should be raped. I mean, horrible, horrible things they were saying. And I was so taken aback by this. And I contacted my local police. After a while, I contacted my local police. I started to get scared because they wouldn't stop. And it Where wasn't just you? men. I was in, in the States. Okay. And I just wanted to alert. the People told me you need to alert the local police because they need to know that you're being given threats in case. Holy because shit. there's a lot of right-wing Hindu nationalists in the United States. They, mm -hmm. they voted for Trump. Some mm -hmm. of them were at the January 6th insurrection, by the way. They were Indian American groups there. Hindu. I just got chills. Yes. And I, there's video footage. So there is a large NRA group here, NRI, NRA. NRI. NRA. And NRA. <laughs> and NRA, oh, yeah. NRA. You know, who support, you know, Modi and Trump and, and, um, and are very, very anti Muslim. Yeah. Very yes. anti. Anti Muslim, anti women, anti minority, anti gay, right. anti trans, anti everything, yeah. you know. Anti human. Anti human. So, yeah. yeah, so it was really awful. It was really, really awful. Priyanka oh, got yeah. attacked. I got attacked. It was just, it was, it was unbelievable. But it just, it sort of uh, showed me exactly kind of the direction the country, India is going and the world is going and how mob mentality is incredibly out of control. It's dangerous. Facts it's don't like matter. Truth doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. How did the whole world become like this? Like, it's just, it's crazy. You would think, okay, 
it's just all of a sudden all the country, everyone just became insane and just everyone's an asshole again. It's well, I think they never stopped being. That's right. It, it, like, just, it just came out. It just came out. It just, right. Right. No. Yeah. yeah. You're right. They didn't. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's horrible. And I'm. I mean, thankfully, your everything turned out okay. But that must have been. Well, I was. I can't. Scared. I can't imagine being that trolled. Yeah. Online. Like, yeah. To that extent of like death yeah. violence and. And my family was like, a couple of members of my family were like, please stop answering them back. We're getting scared. You know, it was terrible. Yeah. Like, at some point you just have to let yeah. them, let it fume out yeah. a little bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I want to, want to kind of go back to childhood a little bit. So you're born in Dhaka, yeah. Dhaka Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but I just want to ask you about this. You left when you were three weeks old yeah. due to the Bangladesh Liberation War, yeah. which was the emergence of Bangladesh, uh, the mm-hmm. Republic of the Bangladesh, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you don't mind talking about it, it said, you know, your father was targeted uh, for execution by the Pakistani army. Yes. What What the hell is that story? Well, you know, the Pakistanis, uh, West Pakistan at the time, you know, Bangladesh used to be East Pakistan. So right. after partition, we were just given what was West East Bengal. Right. You know, was just given to Pakistan because there were mostly Muslims there and nobody sort of asked anybody. It was just sort of automatically assumed that this was going to be tacked on to the newly recognized state, Islamic state of Pakistan, whatever. Anyway, so for about 30, 28, 29 years, however long it was, um, after that, East Pakistan was essentially relegated to second, third. It was almost like being colonized all over again, but but this time by Muslims, but Pakistanis, right? It was terrible. Right. And so my people, the Bangladeshis, were uh, agitating for independence. There was the language movement in 1957, or yeah, in the 1950s, where they uh, resisted making Urdu their national language. They wanted right. it to remain Bengali. You don't get between Bengalis and their language. It's like the right. fact, right? right? So the Pakistanis right. were like, it should be Urdu because it's more Arabic based or whatever. And the Bengalis are like, no, it's we don't need it. We don't want that. So they people died. Lots of students died and so on. And then about 15 years later or, yeah, about 15 years after that, 1971 occurred and there was an all-out fight and India aided Bangladesh against Pakistan which yeah. was, you know, made things even more enmity between the two groups. The United States, however, supported Pakistan. Nixon and Kissinger supported Pakistan, not India. Shocking. And yeah, Shocking. I know. Kissinger, yeah. who everybody considers this great statesman, is actually a rat bastard. You heard me. Anyway, <laughs> so, um, so my dad, so what Pakistan was doing was they were um, – targeting intellectuals, people they felt were fomenting anarchy and unrest. Amongst Got people. it. And my dad was a young, very, very young professor at the time in Bangladesh. And he was a professor of economics, I believe. And, you know, American educated. And um, they he was on a list. And, you know, many of his colleagues had already been killed. My right. sister-in-law's father, she was tiny, a baby, um, they took him into the night and she's never, they never saw him again. Jesus you know, Christ. it was like, it was completely execution style, Idi Amin execution style murders and, and so on. And so we had to leave. My dad, right. my dad had a job. He got a job um, with a nonprofit organization in New England in Connecticut. Um, 
and he was affiliated with the World Bank. And um, yeah, so they left. I mean, I was like a blip. I was like born and then they right. left. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm assuming obviously you have no of your own, you don't have your own vivid memories of it. No. But I'm assuming that this has shaped you quite a bit as oh, a yeah. person. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm American because the Pakistanis were going to kill my dad. You know what I mean? Like, if you think right. about it, like I had to leave. Right. You know, I probably, we might've stayed there, but I, yeah, it definitely shaped me. Um, you know, it, it changed the trajectory of my life. It changed the trajectory of my family's life, my mother and father and my siblings. And yeah, definitely. That's a very different. different immigration story than a lot of people. Most people, a lot yeah. of the, the people I interview immigrated here because of education or, you know, mm-hmm. follow families or whatever it was. And so, yeah, no, we had to leave. Right, right. That's that's pretty intense. And then did you, uh, growing up here, just, you know, I know you went to NYU for creative writing. Did you know growing up here like that you wanted to be a writer? Was that something that was always kind of on your mind? I think I'm very lucky because I always knew it. Okay, that's amazing. And, and I think that's such, I didn't understand what a blessing that is because right. people go talented wonderful creative people go through there or even not creative just wonderful people intelligent productive people go through their entire lives not knowing what their passion is or not even right one and and i knew from a very young age what i wanted to do and i couldn't see clear of doing anything else that is a huge gift by the way the other reason i'm doing this podcast is because i never figured out what my passion was Uh, i never knew it yeah i've had 20 different careers I've done. You've probably been good at everything, which at times is not the easiest position to be in. To be good at a bunch of things is not. There's pros and cons, right? Like I've been a backup Bollywood dancer for six months in Bombay. I was a PA on a set because I always thought I would get it. I always thought I would get into film somehow. I don't know how. Mm -hmm. And I went to law school and I worked at Enron and I, Mm -hmm. I mean, so like this podcast to me kind of summarizes and puts together everything I've always loved to do, mm-hmm. but I never figured that out. I never knew I loved journalism and writing and interviewing and talking to people till 40. Yeah. You know? and so this podcast has been like my own weird journey. So I think I love hearing from my guest that you knew your, what your passion was from the beginning. I just felt for me, that's like a wow. That's yeah. so amazing. I, I wish I had that. Yeah, I wish I wish everybody had that. I, in that sense, I feel I'm just blessed. I right. I just knew that this is what I was going to have to do. I didn't know how to go about it. I did. I just knew, like, right. I was telling stories and writing poems from a very young age. I was acting things out from a very young age. I was doing all kinds of things. It germinated and solidified for me when I saw Gone with the Wind. I think I was eight or nine. I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, at a revival theater. My big sister had taken me to see it. And I remember the exact moment. I mean, Gone with the Wind, looking back on it, is a problematic movie in terms of critical race theory and and just just the way uh, African-Americans are portrayed and and so on. But um, it's still one. It's still a remarkable uh, technical and cinematic achievement and was made in 1939, which was like the golden age of Hollywood, like golden year for Hollywood. A lot of terrific films were made that year and Wizard of Oz and other things. Yep. But I remember the moment, I remember seeing the reaction of the audience to the introduction of the Clark Gable character, Rhett Butler, and Scarlett O'Hara, played by Vivian Lee. And I remember thinking, at eight, you don't really understand. You can't really articulate the emotions that you're experiencing. But I remember thinking, 
looking at the audience's reaction more than what was happening on screen. And I remember thinking, that's what I want. I want people to react to what I do and say that way. And I want to make people feel that way. Right. Well, that's when you know, when you're looking at the audience, when you're looking at their reaction, you know that this is your industry. You know, this is what you want to do. Yeah. It's not just what's there. It's like how people are experiencing what they're seeing and that I want to be in control of their emotions. (laughs) Yes. Make them cry. (laughs) Make them laugh. Make them go, ooh. You know what? I feel like I'm the same way though. Yeah. I really am. I don't know in, in what way that me, like the writing I enjoy, the, the, the interviewing, the making, Connection. helping people Connection, tell their yeah. stories and be more honest about what well, they've it's about, experienced. It's about expression and communication, I think. Right. And just that sort of give and take back and forth kind of. And also like making sure people, people should feel comfortable. Like I'm honest about who I am. Like I wouldn't hold back at an interview. If I ask something, to my guests that's uncomfortable or weird, I'll tell them my own thing, you know? So yeah, yeah. they should know that, look, this is not just putting you on the spotlight. Here's my shit. I'm messy as hell. Like I yeah. have all sorts of crap I can share. So yeah, and I have exactly. no problem with that. Like the messiness yeah. of being human, right? So Exactly, exactly. So then your debut novel, Dust Under Her Feet, was, yes. was based, uh, it was in Kolkata, mm-hmm. World War II. yes around the British Raj. And I'm assuming this is all, you know, about your own identity and growing up, you know, having been born there and having gone what your family went through. I'm assuming that was the inspiration for it all. Absolutely. Um, For me, it's like, so, you know, uh, I grew up watching these amazing, like black and white Hollywood films, these, you know, really terrific films like Casablanca, which is like, I think one as a screenwriter, I can tell you it's one of the most perfect perfectly written movies I've ever seen. By the way, Shambari, as soon as we're yeah. done with this interview, I'm going to tell my, cause my mom and well, my mom and I, like they're here for a couple of weeks and we're doing move. We're trying to watch like a movie or, you know, a yeah. couple of movies a week, just me and her. Yeah. So yeah. we've been watching the Vidya Balan one, uh, Shakuntala, Shakuntala Devi. Oh, Shakuntala. Huh? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it's about her. So we watched yeah. that one, loved it. I don't think she's watched Casablanca or Gone with the Wind. Oh, Casablanca. So I'm, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go do that with her. Yeah. Casablanca is like, Hollywood at its best. Honestly. Right, right. The writing, Continue. the directing, just... and everything. Yeah, it's just wonderful. But so I grew up watching these really incredible black and white films, seminal American black and white films. And I loved them so much because, you know, I knew from a very young age I wanted to be a writer in, in films, in theater, something. And um, so I was trying, but, you know, I would see them and there's nobody who looked like me. Nobody, you know, even like in the, 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 I'm Gen X or the, the movies I grew up watching, like Pretty in Pink and 16 Candles. And I love those movies so much, so but, much. you know, um, The Breakfast Club. Yes. But no, it wasn't really my, ex- I mean, it was my experience because at the end of the day, I was an American teenager. So it was my experience, but it was a different, I experienced some things a little bit differently. Right. And there, the big thing is there was nobody who looked like me. Right. All, all very whitewashed and so on. So right. Dust Under Her Feet is kind of an attempt to work out my American and my Bengali identities. Right. And, um, and you know, I said it in World War II, uh, you know, which was, you know, a lot of the great movies in Hollywood were made during that period in the 30s and 40s. 
World War II, of course, was 1941. For the Americans, till 1945. It started in 37 for the rest of the world. But for us, of course, we always enter things late and then take full credit for it. But and, yeah. then, and then write our write our own history books. Write our own so. history, yeah. Right, right. Um, but uh, at any rate, um, so yeah, that's what does it. It's set in Kolkata in 1942. It's in a set in a fictional nightclub called Bombay Duck on a bustling real street in Kolkata called Park Street, which has a legendary nightclub on it called Trinka's, which was okay. opened by a Jewish couple in the 20s or the turn of, of course. the century. Yeah, it's amazing. And um, and it's about Yasmin Khan, who is the daughter and granddaughter of courtesans. Courtesans descended from the Nawab of Lucknow's court. Okay. And the thing is, Yasmin is not interested in being a courtesan. You know, she can't sing, she can't dance, and she cannot flirt. And she doesn't know how to make men feel more important than they are. Is she, is she a tomboy? Not really. She just, she, she just did, she finds men, she likes them. They're fine. It's just right. that they, they acquire, they require too much management. And their egos, their emotions. Girl knows, girl knows. Girl knows, right? So she doesn't want to do that. And being a courtesan is about giving yourself over to a man's whims, a man's patronage, a man's whatever pleasure. She's not, doesn't want to do that. So her mother says, if you don't want to be a courtesan, you're going to have to figure something else out because no one's going to marry you. This is India. You are not a respectable, considered respectable. You have to open your own business. You have to do whatever. Anyway, she observes a lot of American GIs coming into Kolkata on their way to Burma to fight against the Japanese. And she gets an idea in her head. She's like, I'm going to open a nightclub. And it's going to be all Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald. And I'm going to get a bunch of Anglo-Indian women to sing and dance and do stuff. And so that's that's the backdrop of it. Right. But what happens is she finds herself getting politically and emotionally and romantically involved with an American officer. And the same day she meets this officer who's white, she turns away three young African-American officers from the nightclub because it's segregated and she can't let them in. And she finds it really difficult to reconcile because she's brown herself and she's not allowed into the British only clubs even though this is her kind. It's, you know, so it's about that. It's about all that chuffa that goes along with colonialism. Right. The, twi- the twilight of the Raj, how the British were on their way out, how the Americans took over Calcutta for a couple okay. of years, basically, on their way right. to Burma, and the extraordinary feat of the Allies, that includes the British, the Americans, and all the subjects of the British Raj who came together to defeat the Japanese in the Burmese jungles, which had they not done that on the... Japan would have won. Right. It, it was no, they would have taken over India and China and they would have won. We would have defeated the Germans in Europe, but we would have lost the Pacific and Asia, which meant right. the world would have been bifurcated in a way that's unimaginable. That is not in our U.S. history books. No, but the no. Americans did an amazing job in the Burmese yeah. jungle. Yeah. Um, but they were helped by the South Asians. So this seems like this book is a mix of obviously facts, nonfiction, and fic- like the story yes. of Yasmin. Is any part of you part of her character? I would imagine. I think I feel right. like I'm a lot, like there's there's two, this is also the story about a friendship between Yasmin and Patience Goodwin, who is half Bengali, half Irish. And her Got mother it. is a courtesan as well. And Patience and Yasmin have, they're like sisters. They were raised together in the Haveli, where their mothers were courtesans. And 
So this, so I feel like I'm more like patience than I am like Yasmin. Yasmin is kind of serious and would never, you know, get on the back of a motorcycle. <laughs> she's, she's risk averse, you know? Right. So, right. Um, whereas patience would be like, come on, let's go, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I made Yasmin from Chittagong, like her, her family settled. My mother's from Chittagong, which is on the Bay of Bengal. It's the south of, south in India. And, um, you know, I, I, I inserted, injected a lot of familial things in there. You know, yeah. I think, stuff. I mean, I think that's natural for a writer for sure. Yeah. And then The Raisins Not Virgins, which yes. was a adapted into a short film. Yeah. And that too is about identity, Islamic mm-hmm. identity, mm-hmm. a female American Muslim trying to make sense of her identity. Mm-hmm. So the theme of identity is kind of in both stories. Yeah, I think these all these things are like, I mean, Raisins Not Virgins is, I'm actually I'm in the process of uh, writing the film version of it. Oh, um, nice. And I'm, I'm collaborating. I'm writing it, but I'm collaborating with uh, a young woman named Arpita Mukherjee, who's the head of Hypocrite productions who is incredible she she's a theater director and she was slated to direct the play version of this okay last summer right through new york theater workshop their next door season new york theater workshop as you know they're the people who put up rent they're the first ones to do rent and all this things. and she got this amazing grant and all this money to put up raisins through their program and then, then covid happened and it got shut down and rp and i are like we don't want to give up raisins, but we're not sure about the whole theater of it all because of COVID and all these right. Broadways and flux and all this off Broadway too. So theaters and flux. So now I had written a play, a, a film version of it. And so now we're going back to it. I'm writing it. Hopefully RP, instead of directing the, the play, she's going to direct the film. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. How, so, how does that work by the way, in terms of writing a short film into like a long a feature length film. Is that like a, you start all over again? Like how, how's that process? Not really. You just okay. kind of, you just kind of expand on it, expand okay. on the themes. There's a more real estate in a feature film than a short film. So you get to maybe in, in a short film, you might have to focus hypothetically on just one aspect of the story because you have a limited amount of time. Whereas with a feature film, you just expanded. You, you bring in more characters, you expand on the themes, the moments a little more. It's not it's the same. Well, thing. let me know if you need a PA because <laughs> I've had six months of experience making okay. ja for Cal Penn and Lisa Ray. Really? I took them jet skiing. No. Oh, well, I oh ended, up in, the, we I ended up in the hospital. Oh, okay. Because so Cal Penn wouldn't let me be the driver. And oh. so he was driving the whole damn thing. And then he took a sharp turn. And then I fell and hit my shin against a jet ski oh. and fractured it. And and then he said he would pay for my hospital bill. But I don't think he ever has. Oh, no. Hmm. Got to get a thing. You better get, get, him, get him one of your films. And then I'll come on the set and ask him. Absolutely. Done. Do you remember me? You should, come in, your, <laughs> you should like, come in your bathing suit and your life vest and be like, I want to reenact <laughs> this for you. So you can remember. Well, we're you. we're both Gujarati, so we would speak Gujarati on the set. So when he yeah. when he comes on your set for the uh-huh. film, I'm be like, "Gem Chobai, how uh-huh. are you?" Yeah, it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. <laughs> so raisins, not virgins. You're working yes. on that right now. Well, I'm working on a, I'm working on a couple of things. I'm working on uh, adapting Dust into a yes. series, a TV series. Okay. 
Okay. Um, I've signed with an executive producer to work on that. Um, okay. And then, awesome. And then, um, and then I'm going adapting Raisins Not Virgins into a or re. I, I already wrote a film version. I'm kind of revising it with okay. RP, RP the Mukherjee. And then I, I read two different things. So I want to make sure I got this right. Um, I know you adapted Rickshaw Girl. Um, okay, so Rickshaw Girl is based on um, Mitali Bose Perkins' lovely middle grade children's novel of the same name, Rickshaw Girl. And it's about a little Bangladeshi girl who, uh, in order to save her family, takes over her father's rickshaw and disguises herself as a boy and, um, you know, pulls the rickshaw, operates the rickshaw. She, I think, I think she smashes it. (laughs) So she has to, she has to fix it, but she doesn't understand why she can't be a rickshawala, you know, but she has to disguise herself as a little boy. So also she's got this very vivid imagination. And in the film, there's an animated um, component to the film where her imagination comes to life like an animation. And she's a beautiful, uh, she's a beautiful painter. She's like a talented painter. So okay. she starts doing rickshaw art and her imagination takes flight. And, and it's about her, you know, this, this, the, the story of her journey from, I think, you know, becoming just this little village, young village woman with no major prospects except maybe to get married or whatever. But then she takes charge of her own destiny. It's about okay. female empowerment and she saves her family and gives flight to her talent or in her imagination. I see this as a theme, the protagonist being a very strong female. I like yes, it. Yes. 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 I got I, I to gotta ask. I don't know if I asked this earlier. Do you have any daughters? I do not. I have a son. Okay, got it. Got yeah. it. Oh, you know what? You can. Yeah, you, you he's know very. To... He's very. I ask his. I ask his female friends and his partner um, if you know if he's a good listener, and they're like, "Yes, he listens." Because I think I, I told. Mean, him. Yeah. Look at Mama, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How old is he? He's twenty-two, and he's decided wow. he wants to be an actor. So. Well, yay, yay. Is this a yay, yay for mom? Yay, yay, yay. Absolutely. Okay. So does, I've does been telling him for LA? years. Does that mean an LA move? He's, res- he's resisting LA. Uh, he's doing New York right now. He's, he's more, he's studying. He just started studying. He's with, you know, he's in an acting, intense acting program and he's doing that. He just started it and he loves it. So for years, his father and I said, we think you should pursue acting. And he was like, no, I don't want to starve. <laughs> And we're like, he's like, you're the only parents on the planet who are like, son, go to Hollywood. (laughs) You know, know, it's interesting because his father is very practical and he's looking at his son and he's seeing what his son, what his son's skill set, skill set is. He's seeing what his son's inclinations are. And he's like, this is what he should follow. His dreams. He should follow his dreams. He's 22. This is when he should do it. You know, he should go whole hog. No regrets. And the last question, and the reason why I'm asking this is just because the South is, is your is, is his father South Asian? No, he's no. White. Okay. Oh, okay. So no, I'm just you know, and the reason why I'm even asking is because I think it's just so great that we're able to, as parents, we're able to say that to our kids. Yeah. Follow your dreams. Whereas oh, yeah. I don't know about your. I mean, your parents obviously embraced they your did. passions, so they you're very did. very lucky. But a lot of our parents wouldn't even know how to guide a lot of us when it comes yeah. to the arts and being creative yeah. because it, yeah. you know, it wasn't something that really made my sense dad, to them. You know, my, my mom and my dad were like, whatever you do, you have to approach it as a discipline. 
right. it's not it's not fun and games and glamour. And believe me, writing is really hard. I mean, in terms of forget about the actual you know words that you, or whatever you create. It's the act. The process requires tremendous discipline and tenacity. Right. And there's a tremendous. My father was like, "You're going to get rejected a lot. You are going to be you know you're going to hear a lot more no's than yeses." It's not for the faint of heart, but that goes for anything you do in life. Anything you want to do with any kind of commitment or integrity, it doesn't matter what it is, medical right. school, law school, being, you know, a teacher, being, an, you know, a professor, being, you know, work, you know, opening a business, you know, whatever it is you decide to do, even an office job that you're doing merely to put food on the table, it requires commitment, tenacity, integrity, and a certain level of perspective you know right. and um and so and ups and downs so so they said you approach it like a job it's a job yeah if you're so, doing whatever you yeah. do do it right you know and that's what i told my son when he said i think i want to try this acting thing i said well you have right. to approach it like a job it's a job and you have to right. there's craft and there's play in it and so on but like you understand that it's work and it requires discipline tenacity heart and like, you know, it's not, and the arts and anything related to the industry of Hollywood is not for the faint of heart. It's really not. It's, I'm the, I can't even imagine. You're, you are going to be pushed around. You're going to be ignored. You're going to be rejected. Rejection. One of the things I always tell young aspiring writers is get comfortable with rejection. Because right. it's... I mean, I, it, this is a, I say it as a joke, but this actually happened to me a few years ago. I got rejected from something I didn't even apply to. <laughs> it was like a form letter that somebody sent, you know, uh, some journal sent me going, thank you for your interest in our journal. We're sorry to say it this time. I'm like, I didn't even send a story. Yeah, to this. Wait, wait. Were we, it, were we, me, you're like, yeah. were we in a relationship? I don't know. I know. I don't what realize. are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. yeah but it totally. made me laugh because it sums up a writer's life. So right. perfectly. it's like, you're even getting rejected when you didn't even try for something. So I don't think is, there's any better learning lesson than getting rejected though. You know? Yeah. And I think even think you said this in an article that I read, like, yeah. I, you have no fear after getting rejected so many times. Like what else is there? And I feel the same way. I'm like, it's not personal. That's one of yeah. the things. It's, just, it's not personal. People, people, you know, people aren't going, going, Oh, Sharbri Ahmed, that horrible woman sent me a story. They don't even know who I am. <laughs> they don't, right. You know, it's, right. It's, it's not, it has nothing to do with me actually. And you know what? That's a lesson in life in general. Like even when people are ugly towards you, it usually yes. has nothing to do with you. And so yeah. I think it's just... The chances yeah. are it has nothing to do... 99% chance it has nothing it has to, to do, do with their own shit. Yeah, it has to do with their, sure. own, their own crap. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have anything to do with it. So when does Rickshaw Girl come out? I'm not entirely sure. I think it's... Okay. I mean, they've finished it. It got into a few film festivals. Uh, I haven't read any reviews yet. I'm not entirely sure but i saw the tra i haven't seen the film yet i saw the trailer and the trailer looks really beautiful um it does yeah it looks you know it, it looks like substantive it's and it just visually it looks really beautiful um so yeah i don't know but soon i think probably that's awesome the ocean of mrs nagai yes which is a story uh stories 
collection, a collection of cultural encounters is yes. kind of what I read. Yes. And I love it. it in a weird way. It reminds me of my podcast just telling mm-hmm. different South Asian stories. Yeah. And so I really, I, I felt connected to it right away. What made you write that? Well, it's just, a, you know, I, it's all the short stories I've written over the years that have gotten published in various journals and I decided okay. to put it, to, you know, tried to put it together in a collection and then this independent press approached me and said, you know, do you want us to publish the collection? And I said, sure. And, you know, that's yeah. how it happened. Yeah. I've written a I few short it. stories since then that have gotten published. Um, actually, in 2018, every short story I sent out got published. So that was really exciting. It's three short stories. And I'm finishing up two more new ones. That's no small feat. So I got to ask, what's your favorite process? Do you enjoy writing the short films, the the poetry, the stories? I don't write poetry. I stink at poetry. I don't write poetry. I have a lot of of respect for poets. I'm in awe of them. I don't know how they do it. Um, They're all very different processes, but ultimately storytelling, and I enjoy storytelling. So, right. You know, yeah, I love all of it. I'm working on a second novel as well. And, you know, I neglected that for a long time. And okay, um, I'd written like 70 something thousand words. I actually went to a cabin in Homer, Alaska by myself and sat there for two weeks. It was a residency called Story Night. It's a very excellent residency. It was all by myself. No Wi-Fi. That sounds, that sounds amazing. Yeah. And I, and I only went for two weeks and I wish I'd signed up for one month. I had to apply. You had to apply. And then I got accepted. I was really excited. And I went and I worked on that novel, but that was two years ago. And then I just, or three years ago, almost three years ago, July. And I, then I never went back to it. I got very busy with different things. And now I went back to it. The past couple of days, I took a little break from TV writing and uh, script writing. And I went back to it and I just started working on it. And I had to cut out a lot of stuff. Both of us agreed that everyone has a story, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that everyone can be a writer? No. Based on what? Because of it's a discipline? It's a discipline, yeah. Right. You have to, you know, talent is, a lot of people are talented. It takes much more than talent to make it as a writer or an actor or a director or many things, actually. I mean, like yeah, I said, yeah. there's a lot of rules. It applies, to, these rules apply to a lot of different um, right. professions. Uh yeah, I don't think everybody can be a writer. Being a writer is again, it's 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 not for the faint of heart. It it requires a tremendous amount of courage. Right. And a, a certain level of masochism and <laughs> and a certain, you know, a level of uh compulsion to express oneself through story right. and through, you know, journalism or through essay and you know, so that's it's not it it's just simply not for everybody. Right. I know I, I was saying, I do think you're right. I think there's so many people with talent out there. Mm-hmm. That's great. But if there's no discipline, again, yeah. back to podcasting for me, like there's 10,000 talented podcasters out there. Yeah. But who's going to be the ones that just keep going and trying and going and growing and tenacity and evolving tenacity. and evolving, right. like being flexible? Right, like be, being able to move with the open time, to change, open, open to criticism, and open to rejection, open to rejection, and open to competition, and open to, you know, ev- ultimately ev- evolution. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, totally. that, that's that's really what separates the wheat from the chaff, and and I think 
weeds them out. Yeah. yeah no, yep. I, I agree. I agree. I'm in it right now. So yeah, you understand. Yeah. And then I just have to ask, I mean, it's a cheesy question, but who, okay. who is your favorite writer? What writers inspire you? I'm, I'm wondering, yeah, what, where you get your, your inspiration from? Um, I, I mean, it's, it, it isn't just one writer. It's different stories, different things, you know, different novels, different stories that have sort of touched me or inspired me along the way. Right. Um, when I was younger, I really enjoyed Margaret Atwood's story, The Blind Assassin. I really loved yep. that. I thought that was so interesting. She wrote another novel called Alias Grace, which I really loved. And then I, you know, I know Hemingway's not popular with the lady. He's, I mean, Hemingway was a chauvinist, let's face it. He was probably just yes. time, but he's written some short stories that I find absolutely incredible just because of the sheer economy of the words he uses to, right. to express and uh, describe entire moments and scenes and uh, dynamics between people. Raymond, right. Raymond Carver is another uh, example of a, of a, of a writer I really enjoyed his short stories. Alice Monroe, Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor. Recently, I've gotten really into the science, the African American science fiction writer Octavia Butler, who is ah. absolutely incredible. Um, she she unfortunately died, but you know they named a, a, a position on Mars after her. I didn't know that. A, 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 yeah. Octavia Butler. Cool. She's, she's really incredible. She wrote a short story recently that I, that I actually used in a workshop to teach about characters, emotional filters called speech sounds. And it was written either in, I can't remember if it's 2013 or 2003, but it's about a pandemic and what happens to people. I got chills again just you now. You got chills and it's about a pandemic and and uh, it's and in the pandemic, people are robbed of their speech and their ability to read, and and it's just it's just really beautiful and powerful and compelling. And and given the situation we're in, it was really, really, really um, compelling and relevant, obviously. But I think the right. best writers are the ones who are prescient, who are so right. who are so psychic, and it's a combination of psych being psychic and a com and being such a keen observer of human nature and society and the human condition that they're able to predict in their stories what is going to happen. High, high EQs. High, high EQs. EQs. High EQs. Right. And a sense of empathy and compassion. The best writers are incredibly compassionate. I would assume also voracious readers. Oh, yeah. I mean, I always say to my students, if you want to be a doctor, you go to medical school. If you want to be a writer, for me, I read War and Peace like four times. <laughs> I read it. I was, that's I not was, a joke. <laughs> I, that's not a joke. I was trying to really, the first time I read it, I didn't know what the hell was going on. There's so much stuff going on and I got lost in the weeds and I was really, right. the second time I read it, I read it trying to understand how he kept, how, how Tolstoy kept so many different um, sort of strings vibrating different right. stories and different emotions, right. different emotional filters and landscapes and characters. Cause it, it really took skill and he, how he kept them all separate and he, how he kept them all in his head and he was able to, and, and he saw it through, he saw each character's arc through and there were so many of them. Right. And then the third time I read it, I was just trying to understand how he layered politics, familial dynamics, human emotion, human frailty, and these characters at the same time. And the fourth time I just read it for fun. 
Okay, I'm four behind you, so <laughs> I need to I need to get on that, and also I need to get on Casablanca, and I actually and, told my mom and, during dinner. Octavia Butler. I think that you okay. can read Octavia Butler. I think I can. Man, I mean, I fully admit, Shavari, I have been the worst with reading because honestly, though, I've gotten obsessed with podcasting. So, like, yeah, any second I'm free, my headsets are on, and I'm learning and listening to podcast, like how to enter. I mean, whatever. That's just yeah, yeah. I mean, you do. Yeah, you have to. I mean, I'm a writer, so I've got to read. Right. Um, I mean, as a podcast, and I have to watch TV. I have to, as a television writer, I have to watch TV. I have to watch films. I have to, but uh, I've started to, you know, kind of move away from the canon, like just white writers. And I've started to, even though I've quoted many white writers, but like right now I'm reading, a, a, I've started to read a gothic sort of interesting horror story called Mexican Ooh. Gothic. And um, yeah, it's really interesting. And uh, here I'll. Um, I, I strongly recommend it. Yeah, Mexican Gothic. It's by Silvia Moreno Garcia. And it's really great. Um, okay. It's creepy. I have beautiful. a true crime issue. Like, that's, oh, okay. I listen to it. I mean, it, it's like a problem. Like, I have, <laughs> I need to calm down. Have you seen Mayor of Easttown? I have. Oh, yes. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah, it's really good. Um, I was like, is that Kate? What's it's happening? Kate. It's Chubby Kate. Middle aged, she Kate. looks. She still Amazing. looks hot as hell. She's so beautiful. She's still so beautiful, and she's still so compelling. She's, she looked hot eating Cheetos. I was like, "Who is? Trans- I don't." She's, she's a real actor. She's a transformative. She's a. She's an auteur. Like, I, right after I watched the finale of Mare of Easttown, like the next day, I watched Titanic because I wanted to see twenty-one-year-old Kate, and I, I just yep. was curious. And you see the greatness in that little girl on that boat too. That that's so, an actress. Yeah, yes. that's that's an actress. So. Oh, great. Really quickly before we go, I, that reminds me I wanted to ask you, who yeah. would you ideally like to play parts in your film? Uh which uh, oh well, Raisins not Virgins. Raisins not Virgins. RP and I have some people in mind. We can't really talk okay. about it. I figured. Um, I figured. Yeah. You can tell me over drinks. It's fine. Yeah. Get me, get me drunk, and I'll be like telling you. <laughs> Next thing you know, like you hired me on set, and you're like, "What are you doing here?" Or I've cast you, and everyone's like, "What?" <laughs> what is it? Like, oh, no, sure. Like, I lost a bet, and I drank vodka. She's the star, plus the PA. She has to do everything. <laughs> I'll do it. I'm flexible. <laughs> Any actresses that you would like to work with, or actors? I have like, I have like a wish list. Okay. Just give me top three. Top three is um, Diane Lane. Okay. I love Diane Lane. I I think that she needs to be back doing things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I love Marissa Tomei. Uh, Marissa Tomei. Jennifer Lawrence. Where is she? I don't know. She's hanging out. I don't know what she's doing. Okay. She's making a movie, I think. I think she's making a movie. Kate Winslet. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, I would really love to work with Sarita Chaudhary. Okay. Um, she's wonderful. And I have, I have a bit of a girl crush on her, so I would love to work with her. Solid crush. Yeah. Diane Lane. Yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of – Marissa Tomei and Diane Lane are like I, – I feel like they're kind of underrated. 
Like they didn't, you know, Very. people didn't pay enough attention to these two. Inc- I mean, forget about how physically beautiful they are. They're both so I know. gorgeous, but also. But maybe they didn't also get, they weren't lucky enough to get the roles that needed more attention. I don't know. I, I don't mean, know. Tomei has been a lot of stuff. Well, she won an Oscar for My Cousin Vinny. But right, she, but that was like 30 years ago. That was a while ago. But she also, I saw her in The Wrestler about three years ago, and I was just like, wow. Yeah. I mean, she's just, yeah. And then I saw her live on Broadway in The Rose Tattoo right before COVID, like right before Broadway shut down. Wow. So I saw her in The Rose Tattoo, and she was luminous. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Absolutely fantastic. Okay. People, it's a yeah. solid list. Yeah, it's a solid list. How, what do you consider the best adapted screenplay from a book or from a book well there's a there's a lot of really good i mean the godfather okay the godfather is pretty amazing um maybe the english patient is yeah. english patient is really good um i mean it's hard like most hard, yeah. most films don't translate as well well right from the book the book is always better but i i feel like the godfather kind of the the movie was better than the book i mean i read part of the godfather and it's fine but i feel like right um the english patient i'll tell you what it didn't that uh, that kind of disappointed me was a suitable boy i was a little sad i i i, I wanted uh, more like i felt suitable boy is so vast that i think it's very right. hard to contain it in just a few episodes Right, um, right, right, right. So I was kind of disappointed in that. But yeah, I mean, those are the two that really come to mind for me. Yeah, I mean, I could talk to you forever, my friend. But, you know, it is it is late and I know you probably have a life to go to. Um, thank you for doing all this. Thank you so much. Bye. So guys, what did you guys think about the new interview format? Think I want to shake things up a bit and kind of had fun doing it. So stay tuned. It's going to get crazy. You guys, please follow Sharbury. And I apologize. I'm pretty sure I messed up her name all throughout the interview and the intro. And I hope she'll still have drinks with me. But it is pronounced Sharbury. I'm pretty sure because she told me to say strawberry first. So Sharberry, you could follow her on Twitter at Sharberry Zora. Oh my God. She's going to kill me, which is S H A R B A R I Z O H R A. Sharberry, Sharberry. Say that a thousand times. Sharberry. Okay. I'm done. As always, follow me at Tucker.podcast. TuckeredOutWithAmi.com. Can you sign up, please? Keep signing up. I'm getting numbers. Come on, we can do this. Thank you guys for listening. See you next week. Love ya. This is Tuckered Out. Bye.